tell it by the fireside or in the marketplace or in a movie. Almost any story is almost certainly some kind of lie. But not this time. No, this is a promise. During the next hour, everything you'll hear from us is really true and based on solid facts. All right, a little extended clip meeting I want to hold real okay. quick. Okay. Nice. All right, you guys are here. Turn off um, the recording equipment so yeah, this is yeah. private. Yes. JT is still locked out of the studio, but he's here <laughs> in spirit. Yeah, I have, a, I have a cup up against the door, and I'm listening to him. His response is very faintly. But, I mean, episodes are hard. Watching movies, hard. My eyes are tired. Why don't we just step back in the time machine and go back to 1973 when rock music was king and Skinner was the man, you know, and uh we we discussed the movies of 1973 essentially for this episode how do you feel about that i mean look there's nothing more uh that i would like to do than step back in the time machine you know just like we did last summer uh i you know just like uh, even though we did that episode run in the winter uh I, i you know corona uh unemployment school social and romantic woes uh, I need to get out of here. <laughs> uh, everything was so much easier in the 70s. I'm sick of this divisiveness. I want to go to a time where the president will be put on trial if he commits a crime. <laughs> I, I want to get back to the good old days. And yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that that, uh, that date of May 1st, 1973, is what the time machine gave us. Because, you know, if you haven't heard the original uh hot tub time machine arc of the podcast the way that time travel works here on extended clip is that we have to put the time machine into a website called random.org and i love this website i I, I can't get enough of this shit it's my new homepage, and uh it spat out the date may 1st 1973 of all the dates it could have gone from january 1st 1960 to december 31st of 1979 this is where it put us, and well, we're happy to be here. We are broadcasting from 1973. Hell yeah, dude. I'm looking at a record. <laughs> yeah, I'm out here <laughs> listening to Aladdin Sane, uh, pretending to be gay to get pussy. <laughs> Aladdin Sane is a crazy record. Oh, my God. I, I can't believe what I'm hearing for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm turning on the radio. I'm flipping the dials. I get a little bit of Steely Dan Countdown to Ecstasy. <laughs> I get a little bit of David Bowie Aladdin Sane. But the song that America cannot stop listening to, <laughs> number one on the charts, is, of course, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree by Dawn. And let me tell you, folks, I can't get enough of this shit. So... We're just going to vibe out to that song for a little bit. And uh, while we do that, as time doesn't quite exist uh, in this version of time, we are also going to go to the movies because that's what you do when you time travel. You go to the movies. What's happening at the Cineplex? I don't care much for this drug culture, this uh, new emerging culture of, you know, free love. I'm not really with it. Uh, I'd rather go to the movies and see someone like Gary Cooper. <laughs> but I don't I don't think he's in movies at this point anymore, so I'll take what I can get. We could go to a rep screening in nineteen seventy three and watch something with Gary Cooper. We're still in the great city of La La Land, you know. And True. back then Los Angeles was cool. It was different, you know, it was a vibe. Yeah. Anyway, so we're gonna vibe out. We'll be back on yeah. extended clip. LA's never gonna die, man. They're saying LA is gonna die, dude. We're you know LA. Okay, come on. We're gonna be late for our uh, our matinee screening at the uh, the Lemley Sunset. Right. Well, folks, it's December thirty first, nineteen seventy three, and I think it's time we come back. But we're gonna bring you some movies, right? Oh yeah, I've we've been living here for the past months. That's part of it, the thing. And we have so many movies to share with you. It's frankly insane. I, I, that's all I did. JT, did you go to the movies? I haven't seen you in like seven months. <laughs> were you going to the movies? Where I mean, been? I've been like mostly shooting up a lot of heroin because I am rich yeah. in this time. And uh, 
Uh, occasionally going to the movie theater in that. I mean, I have some loose recollections of movies. I've mostly nice. just written it down. So I, I think I could talk a little bit about some stuff I've seen this year. Nice. I I was all over the movies, baby. I was also all over the television set and the record player. But for Mr. the most Media. part, I was at the movies. Yeah. Uh, did, did you have a favorite movie that you saw this year, Malcolm? It'd have to be uh, Death Smiles Upon a Murderer. I, I've never even heard of that movie, and I thought I was at the movies every day this year. Well, you see, I, you know, you you go to the Lemleys, you go, you go where the popcorn's nice and fresh, and the butter is just a little too slick. All right, that's not that's not what I like. I I go to the the grind house because I'm I'm always on my fucking grind, and um, <laughs> and there's a little little director named Joe D'Amato. Now he's no he's no big name like Fulci. But, uh, you know, he does make Italian horror movies. In this movie, we have a man who discovers an Incan formula for raising the dead. And he uses it to kill people, you know. And it stars uh, none other than Klaus Kinski, who I used to mix up with... Klaus uh, Kinski? Klaus Kinski. Klaus Kinski. That's, that's his... <laughs> Santa Klaus, Klaus Kinski. Santa Klaus Kinski. Oh, Christmas, better, yeah. Christmas has come early this year. Because <laughs> Death is smiling, smiling upon a murderer. I do... I, I'm not going to lie. I don't remember a lot of much of what happens in this movie. But that's the one you wanted to lead off that's with the one tell I, me about. Yeah, exactly. I think it has one of the best titles. You know, these Italian horror movies and their titles, Yeah, they're really knocking it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I rem- remember about this movie, um, D'Amato is, you know, it's this is... Uh, it's actually probably my least favorite movie of 1973 <laughs> that I've that I uh, that I picked out. D'Amato is like he is his. You're fo- going Joker mode, man. He's You're form- just- <laughs> formerly competent. Well, you put me on the spot, and you said what's my favorite, and that's just what popped up. So maybe it was just dancing on my tongue. I had to get it out. It's okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's the worst thing you could have responded, dude. What the fuck? Um, <laughs> but his movies are very brutal. And if you want some violence, you want some screaming woman, and you want some some good framing, some solid framing, and like some some rich color palettes, D'Amato has it. So yeah, what what about? What, do you have a question? Sounds like you had a question. Yeah, I do have a question. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, what's your question? No, you were you were telling me that I always go where the popcorn is fresh, and I know I've seen you at the multiplex, uh, or not the multiplex, but the big theater. I don't know if yeah. there's multiplexes because I can't tell. I'm I, I don't see yeah. uh, theater stations mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, did you see the highest grossing film of the year, The Exorcist? Oh yeah, yeah, I did. Actually, I saw it. Um, Saw it on on my couch with my dad when I was eleven. Oh wow! <laughs> no, no, oh, back when we were in twenty, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, okay. I caught this. I caught this. Caught this before, and uh, this, you know, this is before I became film minded. Before I became really smart and well educated and whatnot. And uh, I was, I was in it. I was a thrill junkie, you know. And my dad and a lot of people my dad's age, around fifty or forty, say this is the scariest movie of all time. This mm-hmm. is the, and I was just, I was, you know, looking at it from that, those parameters. And I watched it with my, my old pops and, you know, I wasn't scared. Didn't scare me. I'm not, not a fucking uh, pussy or whatever. Wow. I mean, I guess we're allowed to use that language in 1973. JT, uh, I know you're from the greater Pennsylvania area. Uh, did you see Philadelphia classic, The Exorcist? Uh, yeah, I'm not like, I like it plenty. Like it's good, like good enough. Um, really doesn't do that much for me, like overall. Yeah. Um, I, I, I prefer it's one, other Friedkin. Yeah, yeah I agree. Definitely. It's one of those ones where it's like I, I don't know. Like I, I feel like I might have mentioned a few weeks or now years in the future when we talk about Psycho Two and Psycho. Like it's one of those mo- horror movies that it's like embedded into culture so much. I feel like without that context i mean psycho still works for me with that like huge cultural context and is fantastic but i I feel like without that i might maybe like the exorcist more it's been like a a hot minute so if i revisit it maybe but how do you feel about the exorcist eddie since you're so damn determined to find out how we feel about it (laughs) I'm trying to get like more of a hot take out of one of you guys because I also have a pretty lukewarm uh, exorcist take. I think it's really good and like effective and stuff, but it's not like one of the great movies or anything like that. Yeah. And 
of the William Friedkin movies I've seen, um, it's among the, the my least favorite, I would say. Mm-hmm. But I've only seen like four of his movies. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the cultural context hurts it too, you know? Yeah, I've seen enough cartoons where a baby's head spins around or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been to hell. It doesn't scare me. Yeah, I've been to hell. Right back. <laughs> it's called 1970. No, wait. It's called 2020. Yeah. Um, I'm and tell- now I'm here in heaven, 1973. <laughs> I'm walking around town and I'm telling people what an epic shit waffle 2020 is. <laughs> they, they don't even know. I mean... It's, to the people there, they're brainwashed. They wear masks, you know, and they're not even being forced. <laughs> okay. JT, <laughs> uh, did you have any? Uh, I, I I know I we briefly caught up on your last, you know, six or seven months of activity doing drugs and such. But do you, did you have any uh, films that you caught in this great year of 1973, or were you just too busy keeping up with the media circus and this unjust, you know, uh, uh, mob coming after our president Nixon? Um, yeah, I did. I did go to the movies. I'd say my favorite picture of this year went with my seedy lifestyle. I love to hang out in the gutters. Um, and like, really, that's where the real people are, uh, in the dirt, in the trash. And I think my favorite movie of this year reflects it. Um, it's Heavy Traffic by Ralph Bakshi. And I think this is, um, probably Bakshi's most personal because it's about an underground comic artist living in like New York city. Like it's like him, like fucking uh, hanging out at his mom's place, just drawing big tittied women, uh, <laughs> which sounds like the life. Um, but he, the lead character is named Michael Corleone. Um, he, <laughs> and it's been a hot minute since I've seen it. But it feels the most true to Bakshi's life. And in that, you get a lot of what is covered throughout the rest of his work. But it's just like, I don't know, the seedy underbelly and just sort of the culture of the late 60s and 70s, along with a lot of really beautiful animated sequences that like do veer into like exaggeration and like cartoonishness. And I mean, there's definitely like, and Bakshi is not afraid to tango with like racism and sexism and the way he depicts it throughout all of his work is very interesting to me because it's like, I don't know, there are clear points where it's like something in a Ralph Bakshi movie is racist. Yes. And it's like, congratulations for pointing that out. (laughs) That's very observant. But I feel like his dialogue that he has with it and, um, the way he interrogates stereo, like it's like I don't want to reduce it to this, but Bakshi's work a lot of the times feels like one of those guys that's like, I'm not racist, I hate everybody. And there's like a weird humanism to the way he depicts like working class lifestyle and that and just like urban poverty that does like have a lot of just people being like fucking rude to each other stereotyping and uh i admire the naked honesty to uh engage with that on that level he's a uh, he's a equal opportunity offender absolutely i mean you know it is that stuff is better than kind of like a a false diversity presented in like I don't know, like, uh, you know, the push for, like, diversity, but not being, like, behind the camera, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know where I'm going with this. I mean, it's still 1973. <laughs> yeah. We don't have to make arguments about liberal representation in media yet. We're, we're, we're still in chilling in 1973. We're still chilling. <laughs> we're, 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 we're smoking grass. We're smoking... <laughs> Speaking of not being racist, I saw a Larry Cohen film called Black Caesar. Yeah. Now, this is like a... Uh, it's not really a black exploitation movie. It's not really like a real guttery Larry Cohen, like gross out horror movie with like splatter effects and stuff like that. It's just about a man on his grind. You know, I could appreciate that for sure. No, uh, it's, it's a, it's a really fun movie that despite having its elevated moments, it's a lot more grounded than you would expect. And I think people like Tarantino, you know, look, 
I'm pro Tarantino in general, but I think people like him have contributed to a general view of black exploitation as like a goofy thing that doesn't have any kind of grounded roots. It's more of just like a aesthetic exercise kind yeah. of to be co-opted and made more serious later by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, but I think films like this and like Emma May by uh, Jama Fanaka are like really good at, you know, uh, finding the real uh, stories and finding the real characters and emotions within these templates and still also having a lot of fun as being genre filmmakers. And obviously Larry Cohen, uh, a white guy uh, to say that he's no Jama Fanaka in terms of uh, representing the culture more accurately uh, and like telling more specific stories. But I think as a just like scrappy urban story, uh, Larry Cohen has a very good grip on the milieu. Mm-hmm. I mean, urban as in taking place in a city. Just to be, just to clarify. Now you're talking about a man on his grind. Now this might have been a theme running out through 1973 movies. Men, men grind. Period. But uh, I want to, I want to shout out a little movie called Charlie Varick, and it's uh, directed by none other than slick man Don Siegel. One of my, you know, I think one of the underrated auteurs of the era. And um, this is a, this is a great thing because a lot of people know Don Siegel in the context of Clint Eastwood, but he gets to work with Walter Matthau here in like a, a breezy. No, yeah, he plays a he plays a, a career. Um, I'm sorry. He's a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> He's a criminal. All right, period. He's a criminal. He's a criminal who's whose works he's on. He's on both sides of the law. He's kind of almost a buffer. You know, he works with, uh, you know, pimps. He works with the cops. You know, sometimes the cops will organize stuff for him. Sometimes they'll organize stuff against him. And there's a, a great, like, un- unsentimental and, you know, deeply uh, cynical humor that goes throughout all of Don Siegel's movies. But is especially accentuated here by Matthau's performance, someone who does have legit comedic chops. You know, sorry, Clint, but uh, not funny. <laughs> and um but you're, you're great at everything else and you know you, you got joe don baker second build you know that's a good movie you got guys like those in them and um i don't know like the ways uh Varric is is very you know i like the kind of the slick nature of him and how uh he doesn't seem to have a moral code either he's willing to do anything uh you know to get anything i mean i think this this movie is kind of famous for having walter matthews wife die like 20 minutes in and he doesn't really seem to care at all um hey you know things happen but uh things are different back here in 1973 that's all i'm gonna say that things are different and you know it's uh it just it, it all adds to the kind of the the cheeky tone that uh that math i was trying to give i think i think this is kind of basically if fletch was good you know what i mean even though he's not doing disguises it has like a fletch like kind of energy to it where it's very like uh low stakes kind of like almost seems like he's just like walking around into like activities and whatnot but uh i mean i think don siegel's just a more savvy guy so it's better it's like chill fletch it's like chill well dude fletch is chill fletch (laughs) chill and cool fletch Speaking of Don Siegel, there is another release related to him from this year, and it was uh, High Plains Drifter, the Clint Eastwood directed and starring movie. And of course, Clint Eastwood, you know, early in his directorial career here, already having been a star for a while and clearly taking cues from directors he worked with, such as Don Siegel and Sergio Leone. I think that this film doesn't quite achieve the depths of some of the great work that he did with those two directors and the great work that he would go on to do throughout the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and mm-hmm. 2010s. But back here in 1973, they don't realize that Clint Eastwood is going to be like this auteurist cornerstone. <laughs> you know, they just think he's like the movie star guy. And I think it's going to be like that for quite a while. Yeah. You know what? I also take back that Clint Eastwood isn't funny. He's funny he's so funny he's so funny why did i say that i was thinking of another he's hilarious there's another don siegel movie called coogan's bluff where basically the plot is uh clint eastwood is like a he works at like this barren arizona ranch where he barely has to do anything 
and they send him in for like a, a big city murder for some reason. So he's just reacting to all the weird people in the city and just seeing Clint scowl or make a face. is just like, yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean, Clint. These people are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and Don Siegel, of course, directed him in Dirty Harry. And then one of the Dirty Harry sequels that Eastwood directed Sudden Impact is one of the funnier Eastwood movies, despite also being one of the more serious like crime stories I've seen him pull off that really is like a like a propulsive climax and everything but there's also just like jokes about it as you know chubby little dog uh, going around town with him and crapping and stuff like that and you know uh, not putting ketchup on a hot dog and stuff like that it's like the guy knows how to have fun yeah you know he made two ape movies (laughs) that's true he did go he chose (laughs) chimp mode over pimp mode it's true as any and as any good man would do well he went pimp mode later on in films like the mule true paper in my pocket dude pimp mode hey maybe um, that's the best way to be chimp mode and pimp mode damn <laughs> divide life uh, by these dualities once again clint eastwood coming across the aisle showing us the way to live <laughs> endorsing bloomberg <laughs> um quick quick side note about uh impressionable youth impressionable youth and hot dogs dude i uh i remember watching a food network show about how people <laughs> ate hot dogs in new york now they don't put ketchup on them and after that i never put ketchup on a hot dog again because i wanted to be cool and i just <laughs> you want to be like a cool new yorker cool new york i want to be like woody allen or frank sinatra yeah, uh, i think uh, ketchup we- and mustard together on a hot dog are good but just ketchup is kind of nasty but it's like i don't know what it is about it it might just look weirder than it actually tastes true maybe it's too oh, sweet i don't know speaking of woody allen did either of you fellas see the comedy movie he released this year? I really hope he doesn't. I mean, even though I really didn't like this movie, I hope he doesn't stop doing comedy for a different type of romantic comedy that's somewhat more navel gazy. Yeah, I don't think he would ever do that. He seems like just a, Jew, a Jewish goofball. Your classic, <laughs> your classic Mel Brooks type, you know. And uh, I don't think he'll ever make a serious movie. But what, what did he release this year? Sleeper. Yeah, it was Sleeper. Yeah, not that good. Come on, do better. Do better. I, I think I'm going to be saying this for the next 50 years. Woody Allen, do better. Yeah, come on, man. Pick up the pace. Did you guys go to any of these like international cinemas around you? Or, like go, go into Chinatown maybe or go into like the Indian cinema, anything <laughs> like that? Nope. No, just uh, <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, I did. I did. I, uh, you know, I was talking about... Death Smiles Upon a Murderer yeah. is an Italian movie. That's true. And I got another Italian horror movie for you right here. And I got a little bit more to say about this one. Um, Lisa and the Devil by Mario Bava. And Bava is maybe my favorite out of like the prominent Italian horror directors from this era. I mean, he is someone who his style is down to a T. I mean, of course, you know, some stuff I'm not well uh well rounded on like wardrobe and stuff but i'm still impressed by that stuff in his movies and um when i'm impressed by lisa and the devil is there's a lot of uh there's a lot of uh like horror scenes that happen without like the 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 promise of like a villain or something there's just like this weird scene where uh lisa the titular lisa is getting a ride from a couple she met and there's just like multiple like uh, the scene is um displayed just basically through random zooms and singles basically like like uh there'll be a zoom in on each character's face as they keep driving and this continues for like a minute and it's one of the strangest sequences i've ever seen and it really i saw this maybe like three or four years ago you know non time machine talk you know talking and like (laughs) it it really did kind of warp my brain and kind of uh, not introduced me to Italian cinema, but got me inspired to check out more. And you got you got great Telly Savalas. Americans will be you know familiar with the the great mug of Telly Savalas, and he he gets to play the villain. And I think he is the mansion owner once this movie eventually gets to a mansion. But what Bava could do just through uh, design, production design, um, camera movements, and just uh even soundtrack too like he's 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 next level and i'm i'm willing to follow him wherever he goes and um i bava was another one of those directors who never in like he was one of those people he's like i don't i don't make good movies you know what i mean he he would like ne- woody allen like woody allen no but like he he, <laughs> he would never take credit for his work or never try to like uh 
you know, he would never entertain him, them being uh, intellectual or something like mm-hmm. that. And he, he saw himself as a pure technician. And I think it came to his advantage in a lot of these movies. I think more directors should think like that. Yeah. I've never seen a Bava and I'm very interested, but uh, I think a lot of directors would benefit from not seeing themselves as artists. I think that's over. I don't think that's ever going to happen again. Yeah, never. So go, hey, if you're in 1973. And I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. You're listening to part of the problem <laughs> with Dave Smith from Legion of Skanks. But I'm going to be part of the solution because yeah. I also went to the international cinema. You did? Yeah. I saw an Indian film called Duvida by uh, Mani Call. And man, this thing was unlike anything I have ever seen. Uh, one of the most like purely lyrical and like poetic films I've ever seen. The use of freeze frames is just ridiculous. While her new husband is away on work, a woman is visited by a ghost who takes his shape. Ladies, what do you do? (laughs) Uh, Each image holds so much weight, and particularly these freeze frames that uh, help the dissociative feeling that this film creates by kind of refusing to exist within normal time and space or even normal movie version of time and space. Uh, When I say it's unlike anything I've ever seen, I'm not just speaking of the compositions, which are kind of traditionally beautiful uh, and look, you know, painter-esque, but also, you know, these freeze frames do as well. But the way that the film moves and the way that not that it proceeds with the narrative, but the way that the narrative seems to flow through the images uh, is something that I've never seen. And in terms of pure atmosphere, I have no real, like, uh, I don't want to be like a Western comparison guy again. You know, maybe Brisson, but instead of like that dead-eyed actions uh, or acting style, it's kind of the opposite of that, but the same effect through the editing and the mise-en-scene kind of. Um, yeah, so, you know, in 2020, when you're listening to this, you don't have to go, you know, to the other side of town and find an Indian movie theater. That's you can't even go to a movie theater in 2020. You can't. Well, actually you can't. Well, some places, a lot of places in a lot of places. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I I saw Tenet. I'm going to the movies in here. I'm pointing to my temple. Yeah. Uh, He was pointing, he was pointing to my penis. (laughs) (laughs) He's pointing to where the section of my pants is, where my penis would be. Look, I stayed away from those dirty movie houses and the highbrow stuff, you know? Uh, but anyway, uh, go check out Duvita. These are all just our recommendations for you. These are the films we're giving back to you. Do you JT, do you have any films from 1973 that you want to give the people of the future? Yeah, I, I also, um, I don't know, took in some international fare. Uh, in the seventies, of course, I'm going to do that. I'm I'm a glo- I'm a global man, not a globalist man, and so well, I don't have- say globalism or in, around people. They don't know what it is. <laughs> have to. Um. So I'm I'm excited to look to other cultures, and the fifth film in one of my favorite movie series of all time came out this year, and it's uh, Lone Wolf and Cub. Baby Cart in the Land of Demons. And uh, this one, I mean, all of them, like, because when I watched them, the span of time was like, I don't know, maybe over a few weeks um, for like the first few with Nico. And then like we did the last two, like uh, maybe like a year or so later. Um, But there's such a fun ride of just like wild. Like, I mean, I'm generally confused by the plots because they don't make too much sense. There's like, um, I don't know, some something of a setup. But the action set pieces in all of them really pull me in. Like the ridiculousness of like having a uh, uh, a little baby just fucking kill people with his baby cart is fantastic. <laughs> and I think each uh, spin in the Lone Wolf and Cub series, even if they're of like varying quality, and I, I don't think they necessarily get better each time. There's like something new and weird. And in this one, I distinctly remember there's a scene where the cub is like uh, just like whipped and beaten. Like people are trying to, I think, get information out of him. And so they're just like flogging a child. And he is just like a straight up 
hero and just like is not like it just not flinching just naked ass like three-year-old baby butt just taking some whips and lashes and just fucking like being a man about wait it. a sec wait a second what are you watching <laughs> i saw one of these films in a in a class once and man that classroom was hooting and hollering the first time the baby cart was like sent down a little hill and ran over some dude <laughs> yeah when they they really work up to weaponizing the baby cart sometimes yeah. it will have like guns in it that like the child will press or other times he'll like uh like just knives will jut out the side and like decapitate motherfuckers. It's a really fun time. Like I think it has I haven't really read much manga in my life, but I feel like the nature in which the I know Lone Wolf and Cub is based off of a insanely long manga series that and I think that's what a quality that the movies sort of have is like, you're just immersed into this little world for like, there's an overarching story um, that uh, lone wolf and cub are on the demon way to the path to hell uh, and just are fucking shit up. Um, but like it, it, you just get like an, it, it's sort of like the movie version of an adventure of a week of the week. And you know, they're going to fucking kick ass and just the body count is going to be high by the end of the movie. Um, but it's it, it really fun and inventive. And I would recommend like checking them all out. Um, one more international film, uh, before I round out my favorites with a couple of films from American masters, uh, is, uh, Turk's Fruit or Turkish Delight, a uh, a Dutch film by uh, a young feller named uh, Paul Verhoeven. Now, it's a funny name, and uh, it also is starring a man in his very first film role named Rutger Hauer, uh, and it's shot by a cinematographer <laughs> named John DeBont. And uh, you know, I think this is going to end up being the most successful film in the history of Dutch cinema. I have a feeling. Yeah. That's a weirdly specific prediction, but I hate the Dutch, so that's probably right. Yeah. It's a it's a very funny, uh, raucous, uh, raunchy, rom-com <laughs> flick uh, where this artist and his girlfriend have this uh, tantric affair, uh, not even affair, you know, a relationship okay. uh, that slowly decomposes. You know, we open on him having this nightmare where he's like prowling the street, stalking women and like fucking uh, kidnapping them and shit. Like it's a, uh, I, I don't remember if he kidnaps in the beginning, but it's, it's been a while, but that would be your addition to the it. core of the film really stuck with me where he is just recounting this relationship that the end of which drove him to insanity, you know, and it's a classic uh, toxic masculinity thing in 1973. Yeah. They don't know about that yet, but it's going to blow their damn minds. But uh, <laughs> this film also predates a gag in one of our all time favorites. There's something about Mary. There is a big scene where he goes to like a big, uh, the, I don't know what event they were going to, but he has to dress up for it and everything. And they take a ride into the city in a car, and then uh, he doesn't—he can't get out of the car because his dick's stuck in the zipper. <laughs> and uh, you get some gnarly, you know, shots up close of it. And Verhoeven, look, him and the Fairleys—they're both like very skilled directors. But I think Verhoeven might be more skilled in terms of the viscera of kind of gore and stuff like that in some of his genre films. And uh, this one is uh, it's a real nail biter. Yeah. I don't know if nail biter is the right word. More like a nut biter. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> now that's what I'm. Now that's what I am talking. Hold about. on to your ball sack if you're listening right now. Um, but you know, I you know, you guys, Mister International, that's cool. You know, me, I'm just I'm one block Joe. I stay on one block. There's a movie theater there, and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, one block Joe. Oh fuck! I really old, want that to stick. One block Joe. I'm just old one block Joe. You know? I, don't, I don't know too much. I'm not a smart guy. I just stay on one block. And we got we got a cineplex there. Um, but but I saw the last detail directed by you know New Hollywood powerhouse Hal Ashby, and you know. You know, much like the Farrelly's, you know, you might think a girl is cool if her favorite movie is Harold and Maude. But me, the likes of me, it'd have to be the last detail. And, um, 
you know, just to give a, a point of comparison, very similar to like Husbands by Cassavetes, where you have three men kind of uh, trying to, you know, trying to drink a lot, trying to celebrate as, you know, they, they know they're kind of walking towards their death in a certain sense. We what The plot is basically um, Jack Nicholson and Otis Young are two higher Navy commanders who have to bring Randy Quaid, a young Randy Quaid, to the brig. And he's going to go to jail for eight years for basically stealing a pen from, like, the Navy gift shop. And they're, the Navy is willing to throw the book at this young Randy Quaid. And, uh, you know, Nicholson and uh, Young are not very happy about this. And they're trying to, you know, Quaid, Quaid's never got laid. You know, he's never really drank before. They're trying to give him a lot of first experiences. And um, Nicholson, obviously, you know, he has problems of his own along the way. A lot of alcoholism and stuff like that. And I, I think this is just a really good movie. You know, it uh, has that uh, anti-naval sentiment, anti-government sentiment, you know, showing that, you know, maybe things are a little bit too punitive around here. And um, just seeing these three characters, you know, have fun, get reckless, you know, makes me have the feeling of fun myself. And I, I enjoyed it a lot. I really need to watch that one. Uh, it's been on the list for quite a while. I still haven't seen much Hal Ashby other than like uh, the landlord and uh, being there. The landlord's awesome. I haven't seen those are the ones I haven't seen. Landlord seems great, but I think I think more Hashby I watch. Hashby. That's a. I guess that's a good nickname he for did, him. He did puff tough. Hashby yeah. Plus, it's his name's Hal, so it kind of works. Shallow Hashby. Shallow. <laughs> This name is just the gift that keeps on giving. But I think he's a key text to the 70s. I think he's he's really uh, someone to look into. I'm going to talk about a classic Hollywood director who really didn't fit in in classic Hollywood and then went overseas and then came back and, you know, kind of gave the middle finger to new Hollywood because he's the genius and all of them are just suckers. And his name's Orson Welles. Oh, what a goat. Orson Welles, the goat made his final film or his final completed film and his most goaded film f for fake in 1973 this definitely is i would have to qualify maybe not my favorite but his most based film for oh sure. my god absolutely An investigation into the truth the lies the sex the videotape all that is cinema pausing in the middle of a story about art thievery to order the steak au poivre while on camera and then only to upstage yourself by weaving this epic tale of your girlfriend cucking picasso out of some paintings uh forgery reality documentary cinema editing as deception it's all here one of the great films uh this is just like it it's endless with F for fake, the possibilities. <laughs> and I think Wells, Wells' charisma is on 10 at this point. You know? Oh, my God. The cloak. The cloak. Yeah. See, you know, he's not looking his best, but, you know, swagger is eternal, as oh, yeah. we learned. And, uh, I mean, there's so many, like, small moments here where I just, I, I'm just so happy just watching him operate. I mean, I don't even rem- remember the context of the scene, but there's, like, a shot of him, like, at a at a dinner and he's explaining something to someone and he keeps, he's surrounded by two people and he's, he's turning from person to person to explain it. Just yeah. like these, these little affects he pulls in this movie are just one of the, not even one of the main reasons why it's well considered, but probably one of my favorites. Oh, I love it. And like for me, like effort fake along with like just Wells in general, he like magicians are generally pussies, but like he can take that type of shtick and I feel like elevated in like an interesting and like fascinating way that like, I don't know, by doing the little playful trickster stuff with Wells, it's just so fucking fun. And like, I don't know, it's I, very difficult, I think, for a movie to be like um, extremely like formally inventive like this and go all over the place while also being like. I don't know, an absolute fucking breeze to watch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he his magician swag elevates <laughs> over the decades going by, and he goes from being a prudish, snobby magician to uh, his physically transforming more and more into a blob, and yet that leading his magic to be more appealing to young, exotic, uh, hot women. And I think that this film is 
is just beautiful in that regard. I mean, I, I don't know if I mentioned it on pod, but I watched the Orson Welles TV project that he did for the BBC, the uh, Orson Welles sketchbook a while back. And he's like talking about life stories that he had leading up to that point in the 50s when he recorded it and drawing stuff. And he tells a story about how he was dating a woman and he pulled off a magic trick and she didn't like it. And the moral of the story is that, you know, uh, women do not, you know, appreciate magic. It's, it's a men's <laughs> game. And, you know, I'm sorry to any of the women women watching this broadcast tonight because i spent over 40 dollars telling that telling that airline pilot to spell uh, (laughs) or whatever the trick was in the sky you know here he instead of having that incel mindset he uses (laughs) his magic of cinema and his sleight of hand magic to show off having a hot girlfriend and making a good movie about it Sure, he's a little bit more up on magic at this point. Yeah, Orson Welles throughout his career made the full virgin to Chad transformation by Absolutely. just getting mm-hmm. huge, and and also getting pussy. <laughs> fellas, if you, fellas, little little hot tip, and this has actually worked for me myself. Um, <laughs> if if uh, if you're having trouble with the ladies, just pack on fifty. A quick fifty is going to do you nice and good. People want to see you nice and big, bigger than before. Um, yeah, I, I feel the same way. Uh, or- Orson's editing in this is ridiculous. I mean, as people in 2020, we've seen a lot that can emulate this. But in 1973, man, I, I swear to I swear to God, I saw a guy have a seizure watching this movie. <laughs> this guy was in the theater jacking off, thought, he w- thought it was the porno house. He was in the wrong theater. <laughs> But in terms of like the artifice of movies and like I talked about this when I watched Othello a few weeks ago, uh, Wells is so dedicated to pulling back the curtain and, you know, not fully revealing how you do the magic trick, but like showing a little bit of it enough for you to piece it together, but not quite enough for you to do it as well as he would ever do it because he's a god magician of cinema and playing with like people's. Uh, want to look behind the curtain the, mm-hmm. the the desire to have it all figured out is also being played with uh do you have is this your favorite film of 1973 uh you know give me one s- second to what, check what about you jt do you have any other films from 1973 that you're just dying to bring to the people the next main pick i have and probably my favorite film of 1973 is like pretty obvious i mean i before i say that I do want to mention a slightly uh, deeper cut. There is Oh Lucky Man, uh, directed by Lindsay Anderson, which is like, I think it might be... We love women filmmakers on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) See? (laughs) That's enough, right? It's like uh, three hours, maybe a little bit longer musical uh, that like, I don't know. The musical elements are pretty sparse uh save for like a handful of songs where it's like about this weird like capitalist tale uh with malcolm mcdowell as like just some sort of fuck up who bumbles about uh england and uh, i don't know it was a really good time again it's been a hot minute since i've seen it but i really enjoyed it but my favorite film of 1973 i would say is the long goodbye that's probably my number two right behind Epic Fake. Long Goodbye is incredible. You want, you want to tell the people why you like that movie, JT? I don't know. Peak Altman for me in the sense where I think there's this like fun hangout quality that he interweaves with the film noir that works really well. I mean, the later comparison that's obviously, I mean, it, it's big and many people have done it before but the big lebowski in the sense where it's just sort of this like roaming about detective story and also in addition to the big lebowski another cornerstone for you know film twitter people that listen to this podcast is inherent vice which also oh is a clear you know byproduct of this film and both of these films are like what if philip marla what if film noir was culturally stoned you know exactly And I think, like, I don't know, it's hard. A a lot of filmmakers can try and do, like, the vibes like this that are, like, I don't know, chill stoner aesthetic. But they very rarely succeed in actually getting as chill as Altman does. The Mm -hmm. ultimate stoner. 
It's true. And of course, that leaves you the cat. The opening scene is just some of the most beautiful and simplistic Altman uh, filmmaking, just a, a man's journey to feed his damn cat, you know? That's probably where Save the Cat comes from, right? Oh, it's gotta be. He saves that damn cat. Or does he? No, he doesn't. But still, you know. That's, that's why this one's bitter and cynical and grim and dark. <clears throat> Not box office ready. There's that great Sterling Hayden performance as well as like the drunk sort of like Steinbeck style writer that is like phenomenal. Oh my god, I love it. And he, like, for the era that this film takes place in, he could have been, you know, a big writer writing those paperback pulp crime novels, you know, in the era of the original Marlowe. And this is, like, the Philip Marlowe character from those movies wakes up and realizes that, like, the the hippie-friendly, sun-soaked version of Los Angeles 30 years later is just as skeezy as the noir era, but it's just, like, a completely different set of... Uh, politics and people that leads it to be that way you know uh it's it's a really incredible film he takes a sojourn down to mexico and greases the wheels of some officials there to get some more information you know uh it all starts with losing your cat and next thing you know you know you're you're in with this crazy jewish mobster Mm -hmm. who has arnold schwarzenegger as a bodyguard uh in an early non-speaking role and uh he also like slashes a woman's face with a coke bottle and one of the definitely more like hard to stomach moments in the film uh but it also has that breezy air that the best kind of fun neo-noir is you know and it's just always moving and smoking and taking in new information and you know learning and one of my favorite lines is uh, <laughs> it's so fucking stupid but uh he, he has these girls next door that are always naked and doing yoga and asking him to go to the grocery store for them and they offer him a brownie and he says uh, no thanks they make my teeth hurt but if you got a Yankee doodle. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimate player status, you know, right thing to say at the right time. Oh, man. I, uh, I remember watching this movie kind of soon after Inherent Vice came out because, you know, people, you know, it's a very obvious comparison. And uh, I remember enjoying it. Yeah. I mean, oh, so you haven't seen it in a while. I've seen yeah, it yeah, like five yeah. times. Yeah. No, I I think it deserves a, a revisit because I definitely, it was my first Altman at the time and I don't think I had a grasp on his style yet. And mm-hmm. I think it kind of alienated me a little bit. Well, this yeah. one also is such like in conversation with classic Hollywood, the way that so many of his 70s films are, you know, McCabe mm-hmm. with the Western and this one with the noir and the way that it even like uh, has the security guard at the Malibu estates who like does impressions of Barbara Stanwyck and Jimmy Stewart and stuff like that. And uh, one of the great moments is Elliot Gould freaking out this guy by getting the security guard to do a Walter Brennan impersonation at him, uh, which is a very <laughs> funny bit. Yeah, I think I think it definitely warrants a revisit. And I've you know, I've warmed up to Elliot Gould, you know, stuff like that. Altman. I think I'm ready. I know film noir. I'm such a different man now. <laughs> uh some other films from nineteen seventy three that I want to take with me. Uh Francois Truffaut's Day for Night. Now this spawned a little bit of a beef between yeah. hardcore Marxist Godard, who's over there making his Ziga Vertov group films right now, and Truffaut, who's keeping it real, making Oscar bait in French. <laughs> <laughs> That is that is a that's a fun beef, right? Uh, from what I believe, Godard wrote a letter saying like "Day for Night" is not representative of the actual film process, and yeah. what you've presented is bullshit. And that if this was really realistic, you'd it would show you fucking one of your actresses, you piece of shit. I think yeah. that's, I think he says something uh, like that. It's along those lines, yeah, yeah. and the fact that he just has fallen off, and I think. Godard's Spielberg hate boner is starting to flourish at this point, you know, alongside the, uh, I guess actually uh, Close Encounters wouldn't come out for another four mm-hmm. or five years. But so I guess uh, that point is negated. But I think it's an interesting parallel to be drawn with Truffaut working with Spielberg mm-hmm. and the constant Spielberg hate that Godard would throw uh, throughout the rest of his career. Um, I also saw Badlands by this new genre filmmaker, Terry Malick. By Badman, uh, Terry Malick, dude. 
<laughs> and I hope this guy just keeps cranking out these pulpy, uh, you know, Midwestern crime movies, right? Yeah, me too. Oh, also one of the freak shows I went to, I did go to one of those triple X theaters downtown, uh, oh, and I yeah. saw the erotic rights of Frankenstein directed by Jess Franco. Now Frankenstein, that guy is all green and lumpy. Why do I want to see his erotic rights? Well, in this movie, <laughs> Jess Franco is going to give you a nice tight zoom in on Frankenstein's butt and you're going to learn why. <laughs> <laughs> this is a film uh, with a lot of uh, bondage and torture and all that good stuff, and also Frankenstein is in it. So be careful, kids. Well, dude, you know, you know me. You, the sex is cool, but I love drugs and I love tripping out, getting trippy. You ever heard of this movie called The Holy Mountain? It's, oh my god! Oh damn, dude! Dude, I'd put that. I'd put that in a pipe and smoke it. Uh, if it was yeah. That movie messed me up. Um, <laughs> um, a little so, awkward? To be, a little to be a little more uh, sincere about it, yeah, this movie literally did fuck me up as like yeah. an 18-year-old new cinephile who had never seen anything like it, and now I imagine I would not like it very much if I went back to it, but uh, it messed me up back then. Jordorowski, right? That's that's someone whose like reputation is kind of Well, he's also been wrong. canceled. Oh, yeah. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. No good. So uh, take back that recommendation. And uh, oh, uh, the crazies by George Romero is crazy because uh, I escaped 2020 because I didn't want to live in this quarantine, and then I go back to 1973 and it's in the movies. Um, no thanks. Yeah, no thanks. So, uh, you know what movie that's taught in film schools? Uh, maybe even in 1973 because it made that much of an impact. But uh, don't look now. Mm. I never, I never quite got attached to that movie. I never quite. Uh, you ever see this? You I never had this? to watch it, but I feel like that's the only way I would is if I had to. I haven't looked now. I haven't seen it at all. That was one of those rare instances where like the, the class hates a movie and I'm like, I kind of don't like this either. Yeah. You know what my favorite album from this year was? Houses of the Holy by Led Zeppelin. Hell, dude. Rock on. Rock on, baby. Also, Band on the Run by Paul McCartney and Wings. And No yeah. Pussyfooting by Fripp and Eno for a little bit of a deeper cut. Inner Visions, a fantastic album, as I'm as sure as you I all like know. I like rock music. Yeah, I mean, not to change the subject here. Um, and, you know, I, I, Eddie has this weird thing where he makes me feel weird about liking Steely Dan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I guess he doesn't. But um, um, Countdown to Ecstasy, what a wonderful album. My Old School, Your Gold Teeth. These are songs that will live the test of time. JT, do you want to bring any records with you back to 2020? Oh, hell yes. I love this time. I would say some of my favorite albums from 73. I mean, I mentioned Aladdin Sane earlier, um, but uh, Raw Power by the Stooges, uh, For Your Pleasure, Roxy Music. I would say that's probably the best Roxy Music album of their very short run. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, raw power. Definitely throw that on my list as well. But if you're bringing a copy, I guess I can just borrow yours or whatever. Yeah. Why not? I'll allow it. All right. Cool. Um. Do you guys want to get back in the tub? Yeah. I left something in the oven. I'm keeping my shirt on though because I <laughs> ate a lot in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> Living that Orson Welles life. Exactly. I saw my guy up there living at yeah. large and I was like, all right, I'm putting on a quick 50. I'm getting the cloak. I'm getting the hat. I'm going off. I'm getting the gloves. <laughs> quick 50, dude. <laughs> I just need to pack on a quick 50. Why not? I'm a charlatan. True. <laughs> Orson Welles PUA program. <laughs> he was the original pickup artist. All right. Uh, we will see you next week in 2020 uh, on the Patreon. Um, after we talk about broadcast news in real life with Sean Glynis, we will talk about something else with him. Oh, I think we're going to talk about three times. What's that? Oh, hell yeah. The film by Ho Shao Shin. Okay, sick. Shows how much you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know everything. <laughs> just uh, uh, I, I, I don't, I've only seen like two of his movies anyway. Oh, uh, interesting. I've seen three. Oh, okay. Well, we'll see you next week. <laughs> All right. Bye. Damn right I want to send the file over.